Okay, yeah, all right, let's go. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the EdTech Tangent. My name's Dan, and I'll be hosting this fortnightly series. With this current transformation of the landscape of learning, I thought this was a good time to start bringing together the insights from instructors and innovators around the world. With the podcast becoming a more and more common form of media out there on the web, it seems sensible to start sharing in this audio format. I've actually wanted to start sharing stories and conversations for some time now, and at the start of 2021, that can finally begin. So I'm very excited to get this going. It's going to be a learning experience as we get off the ground. So I would love to hear your feedback on what I'm doing well and where I could improve. You can get in touch via the links in the description. What this podcast aims to do is share with anyone and everyone involved in higher education, the stories, conversations, and insights, which might help us to spot the trends and themes in how education is changing with time. Through fortnightly episodes featuring interviews and conversations, we're hoping to showcase those stories that might just entice or expose new ideas and inspiration for the next time you're doing anything with learning. And it's my opinion that everything has to do with learning. For the upcoming few episodes, I want to dive deep into the culture of feedback, how we give, receive, process, and respond to feedback on all sorts of levels. We'll be bringing in students and teachers to talk about their experiences, and hopefully build a picture of the diversity of these encounters. To kick things off, I thought it might be a good idea to tell you first a little bit about myself, my journey through education and experiences as a student, a tutor, and now in instructional design. And after introducing myself, I want to start exploring a little deeper the topic we just mentioned, feedback cultures, and specifically some of the challenges we face in how we come to process suggestions and criticisms in formal and informal scenarios. So let's get started with that first story. Once again, my name is Dan. I'm 26 and I was born in East London. I didn't have any educators in my direct family. My dad was a surgeon and my mum a nurse. And I was quite sure I'd be going down a similar route until not too long ago. When I was five years old, our family moved to Saudi Arabia following my dad's work. And I went into a tiny international school of not more than 80 odd students and stuff. Maybe it's the rose tinted glasses of retrospect but those years felt like paradise. It was a great school, and I especially loved music classes. Even at a young age, I think you can remember a good teacher, someone whose manner just stays with you. After a few years, the family emigrated back to the UK, eventually moving house a couple more times from the East Coast to the Midlands, and finally settling in Staffordshire. That's where I finished high school and college, or sixth form as it was called over there. Back in the UK, there was a lot of variety in my educational experiences. I had some wonderful, inspiring teachers, and also teachers who were unforgettable for other reasons. I went to some good schools, and I went to some bad schools. To this day, I've studied at about 10 different institutions. As a teen, I loved to learn, to read, and alongside my shy character, that didn't make me hugely popular at school. After finishing a year early, I wanted to keep growing in new directions, seeing new things and places, and so I decided to go abroad to the Netherlands to study. The year before I made the decision, the UK government also raised the price of university tuition fees by 300%, making them some of the most expensive in Europe, and this definitely impacted my choice to leave the country. In college, I was asked a lot by the native folks, students and townsfolk, 
why I chose to leave the UK and come to a tiny town in the rural Netherlands to study. Well, apart from the much cheaper costs, English language instruction and purported high quality of education, it was also time to leave my comfort zone in Britain and challenge myself with a new direction. On the side, I also got rejected from every medical school I applied to in the UK. So I started following a pre-med track in a liberal arts college, which gave me the opportunity to learn a bunch of other things on the side, as well as the natural sciences. I took courses in history and gender, philosophy and politics, anthropology and languages. It was another fairly small college, about 600 students in total, with everyone knowing everyone else. I noticed that I would often be very interested in what my friends were studying, psychology and linguistics and other things I had no room in my timetable for, and sometimes I would lack motivation to study my own textbooks, instead wanting to delve into the topics from domains I had nothing to do with. The combination of exploring the unknown and also following a peer along their own learning trajectory was oftentimes more exciting for me than studying for my own exams. The further I went with this broad spectrum of education, the less convinced I became that I wanted to follow my father's footsteps and become a doctor. After graduating, the feeling fully sunk in, and for a few years I stepped back from education altogether, instead working as a cook in a nearby restaurant for the next couple of years. Eventually, I started to feel the stagnation of making the same sandwiches and stews every day and cleaning the same deep fat fryer every week. I applied for a course in science communication and education. Not exactly sure where I'd end up, but having some vague notion of becoming an Attenborough-esque science presenter or journalist. During this course, I experienced my first internships in the Dutch language, an exhausting, overwhelming, but rewarding experience. For one, I designed an interactive, augmented reality-enhanced promotional poster about the origins of life and the cosmos, which sadly never took off. For the second internship, I translated an entire course book of the National Science Curriculum from Dutch to English, but again was unfortunately not able to see this through to final publication, as it was happening just as the COVID pandemic was hitting. In this year, after quitting the kitchen, I also had to find another way to support myself, so I tried my hand at freelance personal tuition, both in music and English, and had mixed success. Then, around halfway through my degree, I started working at the edtech company Feedback Fruits in the teacher relations team. I would be traveling the country giving workshops to and holding interviews with teachers and instructional designers, which I didn't know when I began, but it was a dream come true. I have great admiration for high school teachers, but I know I couldn't do it myself. Although I love teaching and learning, the thought of standing in front of a room packed full of rowdy teenagers remains one of my biggest nightmares. But now, I'd been given the chance to experience teaching from this different supporting role, and I instantly fell in love. It was a perfect match for me, as I'd been struggling for the past year to decide in my degree whether I should commit myself to a teaching track or go down the research route. Now the path had been shown to me, and I eagerly set upon it. Through the tumultuous course of 2020, I spoke to hundreds of teachers, designers, and students about all things education, and documented about 25 in-depth case studies of particular courses. So just like my broad upbringing, I was beginning to see this broad picture of education, coming across recurring themes and fitting them into a still incomplete picture. But with breadth, you have to keep in mind that it's often opposing depth. I never really got deep into these questions into the experiences of the teacher in the classroom, of the supporting role in instructional design. But I want to change that now, which is one of the reasons I started this podcast. 
issues around engagement and assessment and dealing with feedback, they keep coming up time and time again for me in almost every conversation I have with educators. Over the coming episodes, I want to take a look at this last one, feedback, specifically the different cultures of feedback on local and global scales. This time, I got the chance to ask the CEO and co-founder of Feedback Fruits, Eval de Kock, about his experience with feedback and interaction in his classes during his studies. He had this to say. The things that made me go into being an entrepreneur in education was uh, this experience of having worked in an education committee of my studies, where we really tried to get that feedback from students in order to improve the learning. And I saw that process, it was horrible. And then I was the next day at a coffee machine in between two lectures. And the, my, my fellow student mates were just sharing their ideas to improve it, their lectures. And then this professor comes in and everyone chooses each other. Says, uh, the professor comes, good morning, sir. Hello, sir. And then the professor goes away and they continue. And I think, ow, that, is, uh, that, that was my starting point. I was like, okay, this process, sort of all the effort that we do to get that feedback to that teacher, that might, we might want to improve that process in order for then the course to be improved. Human interaction is the key, I think, in education. We always started with that design criteria in mind. We still have it as a main fundament to, uh, to the learning activities that we want to support, that we're currently supporting. Those should be learning activities which create much more and better human interaction. Because the human interaction that I experienced when I was at a traditional, was part of a traditional course was almost zero except for the jokes maybe that the teacher made in front of the class and, 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 and some chit chat with my, uh, my fellow students. Uh, yeah, I guess that that was the type of human interaction that I experienced. And I think that can be much, much better. However, there's of course still this challenge of scalable education, scaling education from one teacher to 20, 50, 100, 200 students. And how do you then allow for that human interaction to flourish as much as possible considering the constraints so yeah, this is, I guess, uh, the, the challenge that we have. Uh, however, I do think there are, there's tons of opportunities here. We're really at the beginning of the internet. So I've heard you talk before about that you want to democratize education. Is this in the same realm of um, what you've been saying? Good question. What I believe in is that humans are good by nature. If you really bring humans, if you really get to the core of humans, if you look at all the big challenges that we have as a society, and you would ask every individual, if you can decide to yes to solve this problem or to make it worse, every individual would say, okay, I would solve it. I would solve climate change. I would solve, well, name all the other, uh, other challenges that we have. However, somehow as a collective, we're not able to get that sort of attitude to the service. Somehow, these structures bring us too far away from who we really are. And I think that that is a problem. And I believe in that we should help people stay true to themselves and therefore help democracies to really work. That's the case on societal element, but that's, of course, also the case in education. We're doing this together. And this idea that sort of sneaked in the 90s, I think, and started in the 80s and 90s, and definitely the beginning of 2000, of consuming education, be being a customer, and I lean back and I'll decide whether I like this or not, just entertain me, that is terrible. 
and doesn't work. So everyone should be part of it, should feel part of it, should feel committed. And uh, yeah, if, if, if you would see democratization of education in that sense, I, I definitely agree with you. So usually when I think about the term feedback, I'm thinking about specific comments and responses between peers or teachers and students. But Avout reminded me that the concept of feedback applies at an institutional level too. The roles and responsibilities we have to each other to be part of a greater whole. And this resonates with me. I said before that all life is learning. But I think it's also true that a lot of learning is feedback. I think we all have a duty to try to be honest and open at all stages of the educational process about how we're experiencing the learning activities. Knowing what went well and what can be improved on isn't just useful for personal reflection, but for the instructors who are also trying to deliver their best efforts. And with these recent huge transformations in the educational landscape, adaptability is now more necessary than ever. And that's something that absolutely requires everyone to be involved and forthcoming with their experiences. Next episode, we'll be comparing the experiences of students and teachers from different parts of the world, exploring the diversity in feedback cultures in Southeast Asia, the Caribbean, and here at home in Western Europe. After all, there's not one right way of doing things, and we can learn a lot from comparing different approaches. So I hope you'll join us and tune in next time in two weeks for another Focus on Feedback. This podcast was made possible by Feedback Fruits. You can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please don't hesitate to get in touch if you have any comments, queries, or questions. Also, you can feel free to email me at dan at feedbackfruits.com. As always, I'd love to hear your feedback. Till next time.